Good. Good to have the Horrells back, isn't it? Yeah, good to have you back with us. We've missed you. So, who said that? Oh, yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, it's stuck on here. <laughs> right, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 16, it will come up on the screen in just a moment. Uh, before we do, just a little heads up, and we'll mention it in this week's midweek update as well, that next Sunday is our Vision Sunday. Ooh, I know, exciting. Where we are going to be uh, celebrating what God has been doing amongst us over the past year or so. Much to be thankful for, but then we'll be looking forward to what we sense God is calling us into for the next season at Beacon Church, which is equally, if not more, exciting. We have much to share. I know I've been a bit mysterious the past couple of weeks, just telling you something's coming in, we want to invest Well, next week, we're going to give you all the details of what that will look like and how we all can all play a part in that. So please, if you're able to, please do endeavour to be with us next week. Um, And if not, obviously, it will be recorded anyway. Luke chapter 16, we're going to go through the last section of the chapter now. It's quite a long chapter. We've been spending a few weeks in it, haven't we? Um, Today, what's happening is now, Jesus is telling a story. And um, we've gone straight from a parable about... Um, financial dishonesty. Remember the, a few weeks ago, David shared about the parable of the dishonest um, manager. It's about integrity and honesty with, with um, our money and how we steward that in an honourable way. Uh, and then, then Jesus goes straight into this righteous rant that we heard about last week, about missing the heartbeat of God's commands, if you remember. Now, we're hitting a story here about the abuse of privilege and about eternal consequences to that heart as well. So in this story, um, God's concern for justice becomes painfully evident. So let's just have a look. Let's, let's read it together. From verse 19 of Luke 16, it says this. This is Jesus telling the story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. (laughs) So what's happening here? Why is Jesus telling this story and what can we glean from it for us today? Well, this story is it's less about 
money itself, which has been the running theme of this chapter so far, hasn't it, in many ways? Um, it's what Jesus has been focusing on, but, but after he's given that aside about ensuring we don't fix our eyes on the letter of the law, but rather on the heartbeat of the law, God's heart for justice and for others, Jesus is now doing the same with wealth and status and letting us hear his heart about greed and its effects in general. Greed is an issue of justice, ultimately. Greed is a sickness of the church that the, the uh, sorry, is it? It's a sickness of the heart that the Western church, strangely enough, doesn't talk about much. It's one that affects us more than other stuff. We, we in the West, for example, in the church, can get hung up about sex and secularism. And those things are important, and we need to talk about them. But we can get so hung up with them while we're blind to the problem of greed, even amongst us. It's an issue. Greed, what do I mean by that word? We're talking about placing our value and our security in money and possessions. That's what it boils down to. And Jesus told us in last week's passage that that is absolutely abhorrent and is actually a stench to God's nose. An abomination is what he calls it. And so many times in Scripture, we see God judging humanity for greed and abuse of privilege and so on. So here, so obviously therefore it's a major concern on Jesus, God himself, it's a major concern on his behalf and he tells this tale now this passage it can often get scrutinized for the all about the mechanics of the afterlife um it's it's um rather than what it actually is this is a strong warning about what we cling to in this life and what we receive in the afterlife that is the heartbeat of what we need to catch from here rather than just how does the afterlife work and how do you get there we'll talk about some of that in a minute but um, we need to make sure we don't... We don't <laughs> so many people can spend so much time in this passage looking at it from that angle and missing the point of it. The point of it is about what we cling to in this life and what we receive in the afterlife. So let's explore this story further. Let's see how Jesus lifts our eyes to this, this wonderful truth or what we can glean from it. We're going to look at three angles, three focal points, if you like. First of all, we're going to look at the men themselves, the two guys. Let's look, a bit, look at them and see what we can learn about them. Then we're going to look at their destinations to see where they both end up. Then we'll look at the warning that Jesus is trying to give us. So, first of all, who's the first person we come across? The rich man. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Sounds all right, doesn't it? That's the trouble. He's, first of all, he's clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, that's mentioned on purpose. Um, the fine linen is referring to clothes that were just a dazzling white, and they were made of this... Um, it's a cloth that was really expensive because it was made from much finer strands of flax than the normal, kind of more um, coarser, thicker, common, kind of common clothing. But then also it mentions purple. Why do you mention purple? Purple. Purple is for royalty, and there's a reason why it's for royalty... Purple dye back then was so hard to get hold of. There was a particular purple dye that was so expensive. That was how you... If you ever wanted to dye anything purple, you needed this particular dye. And it's made from many, many sea snails. It's a particular kind of sea snail. You needed many, 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 many thousands to make one drop. And therefore, it's ridiculously expensive and so precious and rare that it was therefore only used by nobles and royals. Even today, they still make that particular... We get purple from other places now. But that particular purple dye is still made. It costs many, many thousands of pounds per gram. 
this is what we're dealing with, and that's all they had available for that colour at the time. Therefore, if you wore purple, you were very ob obviously very, very well off. It was the nobles and the royals. So this guy, he's proper upper crust, isn't he? He's not just well off, he's society's creme de la creme, if you like. If anyone has the means to help their fellow man, this guy has it, doesn't he? And Jesus says he also he feasted sumptuously every day. Lazarus is outside his gates. We'll talk about Lazarus in a minute. But Lazarus is outside his gates hoping for some leftovers. And what they used to do in that culture, at those kind of feasts, they have a particular kind of napkin or napkins that would, were used for clearing up. And as they clear up, they accumulate bits of food in amongst them. And then they'd throw them out for the dogs outside to enjoy as a, as a treat for the dogs. Gets rid of the napkins and the, and the wild dogs outside are happy as well. That's the kind of thing Lazarus was waiting for, a gravy-covered napkin to suck on and to nibble on. That's what he was after. Now, when Bob and I were in Vietnam the first time, 20 years ago, madness, I know. We're not old, are we? No, good. Um, we, we, we'd been to Vietnam together a couple of times, took a team out. The first time we went out, um, we, we went to visit some of the friends we'd been making. We'd been doing some work amongst the street kids. And uh, we went to visit some of them in their, in their slum where they lived. And one of the families, they welcomed us into this little tin hut. It was one small room. This is a shed, effectively. That was their home. That one room was their bedroom for the whole family, the bedroom, the living room, the kitchen. And they welcomed us in, and they, they gave the kids some money to run off to buy us some bottles of fizzy pop. They didn't have two pennies to rub together, but they wanted to spend the little money they had we bless them in other ways, but you almost have to honour their wish to honour you. And they bought these bottles of fizzy pop as their guests, in, welcome into a home, and here's a, here's, a, here's a milk crate, please, you have the chair, and this kind of thing. It's, it's beautiful, it really was. They wanted to spend what they didn't have, effectively, to welcome us and to honour us with just some fizzy pop. To them, that was the, the whole world. This rich man here, he can't even do that. You see the difference in heart straight away. A survey show, they've proven time and time again, that actually the more you have, the less likely you are to give, percentage-wise. It really it dramatically reduces. The more people earn, the less percentage that shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until they're comparatively giving hardly anything away. Rich boy here, he couldn't even donate a gravy-covered napkin. He'd rather give it to the dogs rather than pass it on to Lazarus, let alone a plateful. That's where his heart's at already. We've already seen that. But what's interesting is, he's called Rich Man. He's not given a name. He's nameless. Why? Well, because Jesus wants to ensure that we all listen to this warning. If he'd gone, oh yeah, this rich guy, you know, Bernard Crookshanks, Chancellor of the Exchequer. This is what he's like with Lazarus outside his gates. That was e it'd be easy then for us to go, that Bernard Crookshanks, Chancellor of the Exchequer, he's a right rapscallion, isn't he? He's a rascal. And we just point the finger, wag it in, go, isn't he terrible? Because he's not named, it's more of a universal message for us all. Otherwise, we'd be missing the lesson. So Jesus keeps him nameless, so we can't help but consider the implications. I mean, I personally, I might not be the richest guy on the planet, but I do know I absolutely am rich compared to others, even in my own town, let alone other countries. And so I can't read this and assume that I'm immune to the sickness of greed. I have to listen. So the rich man is nameless because we all, wherever you're at, need to listen 
particularly in the society we're living even now, for example. But even then, even if you don't have so much, we still need to be careful that we don't, even if we're not in, you know, in, a, in such a place of financial privilege, we need to be careful we don't buy into the, the notion, the lie, that that is the dream. I mean, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates or pop stars like Ed Sheeran, he's made multi, multi, multi millions and so on. How are they described? They're described as having reached the top, living the high life. They've made it. Made, made what? It's all empty, isn't it? Stuff. What have they made? It's ridiculous. And our society promotes this message time and time again. That language is used all the time. Even on the rare occasion when someone makes a genuine, because it ta- often, for investment purposes, it takes money to make money. If you haven't got the money in the first place, it's harder to make more. But even on those rare stories when we get the rags to riches journeys, how are they described? Self-made. See, they did it themselves and they made it. Made what? Made more money, more stuff. Ultimately, it all disappears, doesn't it? We need to be careful, even if we're not in that position, to not buy into the lie that true happiness comes comes from stuff. We need to believe that it comes from somewhere very much elsewhere. So, That's the rich man. What about the other guy, Lazarus? The rich man can be anyone. Lazarus gets named. Jesus tells 46 parables and stories in total. This is the only time a character gets named. We need to listen to that. It's the only time he names someone in one of his stories. Why here? Partly the name itself, Lazarus, comes from Eleazar. It means God will help. God will help. Even for Lazarus, his name told him, God will help. Ultimately, God will catch him. And we see that later on in the story, don't we? That is a tremendous promise for all of us to never let go of. Straight away, anyway. Whatever position you find yourself in, God will help. But also, I suggest, he's named him because Jesus really wants us to feel the emotional impact of this man's plight. He's He's got a name. He's not faceless. This is a real, you know, walk in, walk in his shoes. Feel this. I mean, there's a reason why adverts that are raising money for famines and earthquakes and you know, floods and so on that we see on the TV, they use personal stories and images and footage of real individuals and they, and they, they often tend to name them. They don't go, 35,000 people are struggling without food, so could you give us some money, please? They go footage of a little girl with flies on her head and they go, this is Dora. She's seven. Her brother's just died and she doesn't know where the next meal's coming from. Can you help out? Suddenly there's a deeper punch in the gut, isn't there? That this is real. They, knew, they use names and adverts on purpose because it makes it more real for us. Otherwise it's easy when it's abstract for us to distance ourselves from it. Jesus is doing the same here. This guy, Lazarus, he even had a name. But then what we learn from him is that um, at the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He didn't put himself there. He was laid there. We don't know all the reasons, but it indicates some kind of disability, some inability to help himself in the first place. Whoever he was, this, and there's possibilities of who the rich man is. 
could have been the high priest at the time, there's clues later on. This Lazarus could be referring, it could be a future story of Caiaphas the high priest and Lazarus, Jesus' friend, who possibly had special needs. Why was he living with his sisters? Things like that. There's questions to ask. But even if Jesus isn't hinting at specific individuals, this Lazarus is dependent and he's vulnerable and he has a name. He can't, he can't even fend off dogs who come to lick his sores. What a state is, he can't even do that. Wild dogs at the time, they would have been considered unclean. And in coming years, there's a reason why Jesus is mentioning these kind of details. In, in, in that era, rabbis were, were building the, the, the school of thought that there are three reasons in life why you are considered to have no life. If you have one of these three factors in your life, you're not, you're not living. One was depending on food from others. If you have to depend on other people for your food, you don't have a life. That was what became the school of thought in this era. Secondly, uh, was it if you're being ruled by one's wife? They've always got to think about that, haven't they? Thirdly, having your body covered with sores. If you've got your body covered in sores, you have no life. That was what culture started teaching increasingly at that time. So according to that era, Lazarus here, he's failing to live twice over. Now, whether wrongfully, according to man's faulty teaching, or rightfully, according to what we would consider basic human rights for food and health care, Lazarus is in the worst position possible, isn't he? But what's more astonishing, this gobsmacks me, this man in the afterlife sees Lazarus at Abraham's side across the chasm, he recognises him, and he knows his name. The rich man knows who Lazarus is, and he even knows what his name is. He had walked past Lazarus at his gates, how many times? Or been carried past in his carriage? He knew that guy was outside his gates, he wasn't ignorant of him, and he even knew his name. And he still refused to offer any provision or assistance. That's a sickness of the heart, isn't it? He's so caught up in his stuff that he's willfully blind to a man who is in desperate need. Meanwhile, Lazarus remains in that need. So what happens to him? Where do they end up when they die? Verse 22, uh, it says, The poor man died, Lazarus, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Um, talk about literal rags to riches. Here we go. <laughs> He's got all the riches in the afterlife, hasn't he? It's talking about Abraham rather than to God's side, the language that's used there in the Jewish culture at the time. It's, he's called back to his fathers. Abraham is the first father of the promise, the first father of the faith, the first father, father of what God called to be his family. You can be the father of many. That's what it means. He's gathered back home to his family in God's presence. So Lazarus, who was once shut out, who was destitute, He's now sharing in the eternal blessing he's gathered to his family of the faith. Praise God. Wonderful outcome, isn't it? So we just need to understand that heaven, heaven is a place of all things God and therefore all things good. God from whom all good things flow is the source of all good things. You get to be with him forever. And therefore heaven is a place of no pain. Heaven is a place of no shame. Heaven is a place of eternal community 
Heaven is a place of eternal comfort. And even that's indicated here. His community is with Abraham. The angels are carried in Abraham's side. And when Abraham says to, says to Lazarus about us, you can't come over to, uh, about Lazarus to, to the rich man, you can't come over to us. He's not just talking about him and Lazarus. Not a party of two. There's others there as well. There's community there. But even um, comfort. Uh, second half of verse 25. Uh, Lazarus, now he is comforted here. It's a place of comfort. Because you're in the place, you're in the presence of God, so you're in the place of all things that are good. So heaven is a place of no shame, no pain, an eternal community, and eternal comfort. That's where, that's where Lazarus ends up. But, where does the rich man end up? Verse 23 tells us he ends up in Hades. Now, some people read into what Hades really means... There was a belief at the time, and some people still believe it, that there's a place you go for three days, and on the fourth day you go to the proper place. And Hades is this bit in between. It's a purgatory thing. Now, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's just, boom, you're there. This Hades, when we understand, we look at the clues that the rich man's complaining about where he is in Hades. It's a place of torment. It's quite obvious where it is. And this rich man, he lived a life for himself, so he gets exactly that. When you make yourself God, ultimately, that is what you get. Now, we don't like the idea of hell. We society, but sometimes we as Christians, we can still struggle with the concept. We just have to trust God's goodness. But it's easy for some of us, mature Christians, to go, I don't fully understand it, but I have to trust him. still struggle with it because it's a horrible thought, isn't it? It sounds unloving. But if you truly love something... So overwhelmingly, there should be righteous anger and righteous wrath when that object of beauty or that person is mistreated or devalued. Right? So when God is mistreated, devalued, he has every right to righteous anger, the the ultimate in beauty and goodness, set apart holy. When When we... Decide for ourselves he is less than that. He has every right for there to be consequences to that. I mean, the severity of a crime should be reflected by the severity of its consequences. We would demand that. We cry out for justice in life, don't we? We get angry on the news when people get away with things. And the bigger the crime, the bigger the outcry, and they get away with it. That's the heart of justice that God has put in man. It just gets twisted by man to their advantage. For example, if a child accidentally pours a drink at the kitchen table on their sibling's artwork, okay, that's one thing, it was an accident. If that child deliberately pours their squash on their sibling's artwork, there's a different outcome there, isn't there? Something needs to be done, there needs to be consequences. But compared to that, if an individual throws paint at the Mona Lisa, there are bigger consequences. Aren't there? We've seen it in the news, that kind of thing happens. Was it someone threw a pie the other week or something? I can't remember. Dressed up as an old lady in a wheelchair so he could throw a pie. I'm not quite sure, mate, you've got to get a life. Anyway, um, but compared to that, if someone throws acid in a woman's face, and we've seen that kind of thing happen in the news as well, rightfully there needs to be much bigger consequences. There is justice required, isn't there? It's awful. And if we didn't have a justice system, 
There will be abuse after abuse and there will be outcry after outcry because justice isn't being served for very good reason. Our hearts demand justice because we are made in the image of God who is a God of justice. The reason why it's in us. And we cry out for it. Except when it turns to look back at us and point the finger at us. Suddenly, we try and wriggle out of it. Oh yeah, but I didn't mean it. And oh yeah, it was an accident. And oh yeah, don't we? We do it. But when we sin against the most high God, which is simply, sin isn't just naughty things. Sin is a sickness of the heart that we buy into and we make choices in. And it is when our hearts decide that we or something or someone else will be our source of joy more than him, who is the source of all things good. When we decide otherwise, actually, I'll be happier doing this. I'll be happier going there. I'll be happy having a go at this in the dark. Whatever it might be, that's us deciding that my happiness right now is better served by going there than him. That is sin. That is sin. C.S. Lewis once said, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. It's true. And when we make choices in that direction, that is called sin. And there needs to be rightful consequences to our crimes compared because of the size of the crime because it's against God, the greatest of all. And so for God to be truly loving, we need to be okay with eternal consequences. Which brings us to hell. Heaven is the place marked by God's ultimate, complete, unhindered presence, right? Hell is marked by his absence. And so when the, the source of all good things is absent, just imagine what that place is like. It's what it is. It's the complete opposite of heaven. There is pain. And there is shame. And there is no eternal community and no eternal comfort, which is exactly what we see in this story. It's exactly what Jesus says. Don't look at the literal, oh, there's flames, must be like a lava pit, or that kind of the pictures we see sometimes. That's, not what, that, that's, that's a metaphor it's about anguish and about torment. But yeah, verse 24, uh, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He's in anguish, he's begging for mercy, and he says, cool my tongue, means he's not even worried about his skin sizzling up. There's not just an external, this metaphorical flame, there's not just an external torment, there's an internal torment. I want to call my tongue. So while heaven is a place of no pain and no shame, an eternal community and eternal comfort, hell is, it is the absence of God, so the absence of all things good, so it is a place of pain and shame, no eternal community, no eternal comfort. The reality and the rest of the scripture utterly upholds that, even if we can't get our heads around the finer details. We don't need to worry about the finer details. One day, wherever you end up, we'll find out. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true, isn't it? None of us can avoid it. But we need to, I need to make sure we're very aware that we don't misunderstand what this is. Because in verse 25, Abraham says, Child, to the rich man, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, Lazarus in like manner, um, bad things. Now he's comforted and you're in anguish. This is not a guide to moral earnings. That's not what Jesus is saying here. 
All Abraham is doing is pointing out the reality of where they were and where they are. This is not a guide to how you get there. It's not, if I'm kind and if I'm not selfish and I don't seek luxuries and I'm charitable, then I'll be safe for eternity and I won't go to the nasty place. That's, that's not what this is saying. Again, we must not turn this into some manual about how the afterlife works. Always, 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 context, context, context. How does the rest of Scripture uphold this or not uphold this? What does the rest of Scripture say? And the rest of Scripture is clear that the only thing we ever earn for ourselves ultimately is an eternity without God. Because time and time and time again, we tell him to get behind us because we know better and we want something else other than him. That is what we earn. Our sin, our selfishness tells him repeatedly what we'd rather have instead, something or anything other than him. So we earn that reward. That's our earnings. But what we are offered freely in Christ, the gift of Christ, who stood in our place and took our punishment, the justice that is demanded for our sin was laid on him, willingly, for you and for me. That is a gift that is offered freely, and that reward is eternity with God himself, the source of all that is good. And so, let me just make that simpler. If you live a life based on your works, you'll get anything but him. But if you live a life based on Jesus' work, you get him, the greatest treasure in the universe. It is as simple as that. And that's where the warning lies. Verse 26. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and vice versa. There's a chasm. There's no going back. No second chances. Rich man has learnt his lesson all too late. It's like, go and tell my brothers, because I can't do that. That's what he's saying. Now, we come on to what Abraham says in response to that. We just need to make sure, again, we can overthink the mechanics of it all. Oh, heaven and hell, the residents are having a chat. (laughs) They're communicating. No, in reality, that chasm is boundless, and what it does indicate is it's talking to us about rich man's regret. He's realizing what he's lost. Residents of heaven and hell won't be having a chat, but heaven's population will be single-mindedly celebrating their rescue, and more importantly, their rescuer will be obsessed with him because there'll be nothing in the way of that. And in the meantime, hell's inhabitants will be very much mourning what they have lost forever. And this life is our only opportunity to seek and to to find God while you can. And we have no reason to say that he's undiscoverable. But Abraham says, your brothers, you want want to go and warn your brothers? They've got ample opportunity. They're being warned. They've got Moses and the prophets. Rich man doesn't agree, but it's the truth. The Messiah was promised in the scriptures. Moses and the prophets spoke on God's behalf. God threw them to the people, talking about the state of the human condition, the need for a rescuer, and one is coming, ultimately. They've got no excuse. The Messiah was promised and God's heart was proclaimed. No one had an excuse. But then it goes on. Um, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Send someone back. (laughs) Abraham's like, well, if they didn't hear Moses and the prophets, then they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead either. Shortly after this, Jesus' friend, Lazarus, was raised from the dead. 
Now, some of that would have had a good effect on. There were others who went, nah. At Jesus' death on the cross, the tombs poured out their residents. People came back from the dead. <laughs> I love it. There were zombies in Jerusalem. It's, it's brilliant. I like zombie films. Very exciting. People came back from the dead when Jesus died on the cross. The scriptures tell us. Eyewitnesses tell us. And so there comes a point where even then, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem didn't go, yep, he's the Messiah. People still didn't listen. And when Jesus came back from the dead himself, still not everyone believed. And today there is ample evidence. You want to do a coffee or a beer? Let me have a chat with you. There is ample evidence for the empty, empty tomb. Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? Absolutely, categorically, the man of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the man of history, plenty of evidence from existing, plenty of evidence. If you just want physical evidence alone, then I'll talk to you about what he does to you spiritually. Even just a physical evidence alone, you can't deny that he lived, was who he said he was, died and rose again. He is the, he is the son of God who rose again. That tomb is empty, and yet people still don't believe. It's the sickness of the heart. It's not just a question of evidence. Even Romans chapter 1, Paul says even creation's enough to point to God exists. You can't even say God doesn't exist. There's no excuse. Hebrews chapter 1, you know, God spoke to us through the prophets, now he speaks to us through his son. There's no excuse. And so, I'm going to come to an end now. We need to, all of us, we need to wake up and listen about what we cling to in this life and what we receive in the afterlife. This question of greed, this question of injustice. Let's not allow wealth and privilege while we're here to rob us of either eternal life in the first place, that it consumes us to the point where we don't want to listen to anything else. Or even, just because of that, we can still miss out on the true abundance of life that is available now in Jesus the more we focus on him, the more we fix our eyes on him and run after him instead of something else. Holding money and possessions becomes a thief in its own right. It steals from us our truest security and joy that we can find in him. And at the same time, it excludes others from the help that they need when we hold it for ourselves. Simple, isn't it? It's okay to be rich. Paul says in the New Testament, you know, he says, doesn't say to the rich, give all your money away. He says, rich, it's okay being rich. Be generous. Don't let it have a grip on your heart. It's a moment when we allow that to become our source of happiness and therefore we want more. There's a problem. Ultimately though, it's not so much about what we cling to in this life and what we receive in the afterlife. It's more about who we cling to in this life and who we receive in the afterlife. And so I'll say to you, if you don't know Jesus... Don't walk away from here today without contending with that question. Is he real? Is he who he says he was? The prophets preached the good news of the coming Messiah. Many still refuse to see. Don't let that be you. Lazarus came back from the dead. Other people came back from the dead, <laughs> pointing to Jesus. Jesus himself came back from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. And still people don't believe. Don't let that be you. Come and find me afterwards. I'd love to have a chat with you. I'd love to pray with you. But church, those of us that do know Jesus, 
We can still be blind to our privilege, can't we? What is our privilege? Anywhere where you've got a leg up compared to someone else. That's a privilege, isn't it? We can get caught up in our comforts and end up ignoring people who are outside our walls, outside our bubbles. Just the question, who are we walking on by? Who are we ignoring, either ignorantly or willfully? Who are we walking on by? Ask God's help to see others in their situations. Ask him how we can use whatever privilege we have, whether that's more time, more money, offering lifts, befriending, food, open your home up, whatever it might be. How can I use my privilege for someone someone else's advantage? But let's just ensure we always do it pointing to the one who himself gave up everything that we might live. He stepped down from his privilege and he gave up his privilege that we might live and get what he's got, didn't he? It's exactly the same. So let's wake up and listen about who we cling to in this life, who we receive in the afterlife between us all. May we all, uh, may, may he open our eyes to what we have, what we can give, which is exactly what he did. Let me pray. King Jesus, we proclaim you as exactly that. You gave up your royal status, in a sense, to come down in human form and to live as one of us, to live the perfect life we cannot live, to die the death we should die, to rise again that we might have new life in you. You're incredible. You're mind-blowing. You're beyond description. But we celebrate you and accept you for who you are. Lord, we thank you. But we ask for your help to know you more, We ask for your help to live you out loud more. There's plenty around us, particularly in this current climate, where people need help and sometimes we can be part of that answer. Lord, will you help us to see them, to know their names, but to do something with that as well. For their benefit, for their health, but ultimately I trust for their eternal security that we can introduce into you, the one who's given us everything we need to do your work here. Help us to celebrate you and to live you out loud, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.